We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Welcome to Chasing Hardware, the podcast that sits down with the sports figures you grew up with, and here's their stories. Welcome to Chasing Hardware. I'm your host, Rich Lamella. My guest today played 15 years in the majors. He is one of only 14 men in the nearly 150 years of Major League Baseball to win four or more batting titles. Further, only two right-handed batters, Rogers Hornsby and Honus Wagner, have more titles than him. He also hit 375 in the 1979 World Series, where his Pirates beat Baltimore in seven games. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome one of the greatest hitters of all time, Mr. Bill Mad Dog Madlock. Bill, welcome to Chasing Hardware. Oh, it's glad to be here. Looking forward to it. Excellent. Um, so, Bill, you're you're born in Memphis, Tennessee. Um, but you are you very shortly thereafter you move to Decatur, Illinois, where you go to Eisenhower High School, and you are an all-state football player, also very good basketball, very good baseball player. Um, I want to you know tell me a little bit about your high school experience and growing up in Decatur, and then also I'd love to hear from you. I know you had I think I read you had a hundred football offers, one hundred and fifty basketball offers, and two baseball offers. Uh, for college, but you chose to go with baseball because you were smart enough to know you didn't want guys six five two fifty hitting you anymore. Um, tell tell <laughs> me about all that. <laughs> well, like so I grew up in a little small town in Illinois. You know, uh, we had a minor league baseball team there, the Decatur Commodores. So I got the opportunity to meet some of the players, and I always said that's what I wanted to be. And, you know, back then. Uh, you know, for uh, baseball offers, uh, you know, Illinois State, Southern Illinois, uh, they didn't have no black players. So uh, <laughs> at that time, uh, there wasn't too many uh, scholarships for, uh, you know, uh, you know, black athletes for baseball in that part of the country. And, you know, so they always wanted you to play uh, football or basketball, not baseball. Hmm. And, and what... Um... If I can ask, what schools were you uh, were, were coming after you for football and basketball? Uh, like I said, the Big Ten schools, uh, you know, the small schools in Illinois, uh, you know, Southern Illinois, uh, Illinois State, you know, and some of the, uh, you know, the black colleges. Sure. Okay. 
And, and so, like we said, you choose to go with baseball. Um, you go to Southeastern Community College in Keokuk, Iowa. Tell me about the experience there. And then while there, you get drafted by the Washington Senators. Tell me about that. Well, I was drafted by the Cardinals out of high school. And then I decided not to go. And then I went into the second phase and I went to uh, Keokuk and I was drafted by the Washington Senators. Uh, and I decided, you know, to take it. You know, the money wasn't that good, but uh, I wanted the opportunity to play. So I, I signed with them and I spent uh, three years, three and a half years in the minor leagues and, uh, you know, finally made it with the uh, Texas Rangers. So I got a chance to play for Ted Williams, uh, Billy Martin, uh, all within that organization right there. Sure. And it's funny, I was reading uh, when you were in the minors, obviously, you know, you've, you've always been a hitter who hits for high average. But in, at one point in the minors, you weren't. You were trying to hit the ball out of the park because you thought, um, I think I read that you said that um, you thought the fastest way to the majors was to be an infielder with power. And you realized, in fact, that that was going to be the quickest way back to Decatur, Illinois. <laughs> um, what what kind of changed your mindset there? Well, because like say, when you get, like say, it's not like nowadays, you can hit 180, 190, 210, and uh, still be in the big leagues. Back then, you have to hit almost 300 to get called up. So, you know, uh, you know, just sitting around, you know, looking at averages and looking at, um, way certain players play I said hey this is this is not for me and that's what uh, I tell the hitters that I work with you got to know what type of hitter you are to be a good hitter you know everybody cannot be a home run hitter or or everybody can't be a singles hitter so you just got to know what hitter you're doing and make the best of that and I did yeah and and like you said um you're drafted by the Washington Senators, who then moved to Texas and become the Rangers. While they were still the Senators, and I guess while you were still in the minors, Ted Williams is the manager. Did you have much interaction with him? Uh, no, you know, Ted, I don't, I don't think Ted wanted to manage. I think he did that for a favor. You know, Ted, uh, you know, it's tough being a ma uh, manager when you have no rapport with the uh, sports writers. Well, we know he never liked sports writers. So, but, um, you know, just, yeah, I like to say being that part of my career, you know, I you didn't know what type of hitter he was and how great he was as a hitter. So, you know, you were just trying to make it to the big leagues. Sure. And so then <clears throat> you get called up to the Texas Rangers in uh, you know, I guess September of seventy-three. Billy Martin is the manager. Uh the team's in last place. You kill it. You bat three fifty-one in twenty-one games. Martin pulls you aside at one point and says, you're going to be my third baseman for years. The season ends and the next month you're traded. <laughs> tell, tell, me, tell me about playing for Billy and, and you know, that experience. Well, like I said, we were just bad though back there, you know, it was uh, like I said, I figured I would be there for a while, you know, not because of, you know, what Billy said, because of my ability and because of what type of team we was with. So, you know, but uh you know, end up, you know, getting traded for uh, Ferguson Jenkins, which Fergie and I are really good friends. And, uh, and you know, like to say, you know, three years with the Cubs, you know, which I won two batting titles. So it, 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 was, a, it was a process. But, uh, you know, right off the bat, I learned the business of baseball and how it works, you know. So, you know, after that, it never bothered me when I got traded. Right. 
Yeah, exactly. Uh, it's a it's a good lesson to get in your first month in the in in the big leagues, and yeah, and you go to the Cubs, who are also just not very good. They're sixty six and ninety six. Your first year there in last place, and they've got some some you know they've got Billy Williams, who obviously has been a star for them, Don Kessinger, but like you mentioned, you're traded for Ferguson Jenkins, who I, you know, I think is popular in the clubhouse and also very good. And Ron Santo, who's very popular in the clubhouse, you're going to be replacing him at third. What was it like going into that locker room uh, as a, you know, uh, basically a rookie? Well, it was, it was tough because if you, you know, you might not remember back then, it was only two TV stations back then. That was WGN and TBS with the uh, Atlanta Braves. So, you know, everybody, it was almost like a breaking up a big family there because, you know, they got rid of part of the family. They got rid of Fergie and they got rid of uh, a Santos so I can play. So, you know, the fans, uh, you know, we were, there wasn't win, winning. So it wasn't like they broke up a winning, uh, winning program, but they were, you know, they part of, part of the people, what they seen all their life, you know, on TV, you know, WGN, there was always the Cubs every day because of the, 162 games, 140 of them was on TV. So that, you know, people got to know you like, you know, they act like, you know, they act like you were part of their family, which you were basically because they seen you every day. Sure. Sure. And you, you, you know, come right out of the, uh, right out of the gate hitting with them. Uh, you, you bet 313 your first year, your second year, you bet 354, you're an all-star, and you win your first batting title, 1975. The team is still struggling. They're, they're in fifth place. Um, you speak, speak, to, like, speak to the frustration of, you know, of being a producer, but you know, playing on a team that you know, come June, July is, is out of it. How, how tough is that for a player? I didn't look at it that way. I mean, I was in the big league, something that I you know, had dreamed about, you know, doing and so I was playing with the best players in the world you know although we didn't have a uh have a good team I was having a you know time out of my life you know playing in the all-star game with you know Pete Rose Tom Seaver Lou Brock you know guys that I watched when I was in uh when I was growing up so it was it, it was a thrill you know obviously you want to win but like say it was it was just amazing playing in the big leagues at that time and and the next year 76 Again, team still struggling. Your fourth place team, you win a batting title again. You're not an all star. The all star from the Cubs, you know, because back then each team had to have at least one rep, was Steve Swisher, the catcher, who was batting 236 that year. Um, was that frustrating? Do you have a conversation with anybody about that, or do you just, you know, kind of accept it and just well, you know, doing your job? Well, that was a, to me, that was a total j- joke at the time. Uh, I don't think he was hit. He might hit. 230. I think he was under 200 at the time at uh, July. So it was it was a real disappointment for me. You know, how can you take a guy who was hitting that low over someone who's hitting 300? Uh, and uh, it, was, it was disappointing. But, but, you know, that's baseball. There's a lot of politics in baseball. And as we see, it's still, still the same. It hasn't changed. Right. And that was the year, I believe that was the year Bruce Suter got called up by the Cubs. Um, so he would have been on the roster with you that year. What, what were your impressions of him, uh, you know, kind of seeing him at the very outset of his career? I, I don't remember and don't remember that, 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 you know, it was like a long time ago. And like, so 
you know, most of the people on our team was trying to survive. <laughs> you know, like right. I said, we had a bad team, had a bad team, you know, we, you know, players are just in a survival mode because like I say, you know, you had to produce, you know, to stay in the big leagues back then, but now <laughs> you don't have to. If you look at some of the stats of some of these guys, uh, at least four or five guys on almost every team were hitting under 200 and, and back in those days, when I played, you wouldn't even sniff the uh, the big leagues if you get hitting that low. Now, you know, they get called up, they're playing, and they have no no fear of getting sent down. Right. Yeah. Back then, it was called the Mendoza line, right? And now, yeah, now it's right. normal. now it's accepted. Yeah, it's normal now. Uh, hitting two hundred. <laughs> yeah, and that year had an interesting, you know, kind of anecdote to the year. You guys are playing a game in LA. Rick Monday is one of your outfielders, and two flan- two fans. It might have even been a father and a son, if I remember correctly. Jump on the field with an American flag, and they're, it looks like they're set to burn it. And Monday comes swooping in, grabs the flag, and and runs away with it. Do we we do you remember that you know kind of vividly? And what were your thoughts on that? Uh, as a matter of fact, I I, I don't re- don't re- don't remember it. You know, uh, you know, I see it. You know, on highlights, and you know, and that was a great thing that uh, uh, Monday did. You know, uh, saving the American flag. Like that means uh, a lot to me. This country means a lot to me. But you know, for us, you know, remembering, you know, the point. Uh, you know, and that like I said, when things happen, you know, at that time, you know, you, you don't it don't have an effect on you if, if you start looking back on things because like say, all the things have been going on in the world and stuff like that and going on in, in this country, you, you and appreciate it more now than you did before. Sure. Okay. Interesting. Um, and that's that season. That's like right around the time that free agency is starting to kick in. And at the end of the year, you, understandably and justifiably want more money. You're, you know, you've just won two straight batting titles and the owner, Philip Wrigley says that, uh, that we'll trade him if there's another club that's foolish enough to sign him. And yeah. so a deal is worked out to trade you for Bobby Mercer, te- terrible deal for uh, the Cubs. And you had a great quote. You said, I never fit the Cubs image of a player. Although you might think that after all those years of losing, they might want to change their image. <laughs> um, t- tell me about like that whole kind of process. And, you know, when you've got an owner saying th- things like that about you. I, I like, I don't remember he said it, but like I know at the time, I, I think it had nothing to do with me itself. It's just how baseball was run back then. You know, you know, free agents started with Andy Messersmith. They, you know, they weren't used to, you know, people ask for money. They, they used to people just taking what they give you, you know, cost you. And like say the Cubs was a lovable losers, but they never wanted to give out any money though. But, uh, and I think more so it was just how baseball was running back then more so than any, any other thing he had, to, he had to say something, you know, because, uh, I, I don't know if he knew that much about baseball and there's no reason for him to know that much about baseball because he had his own business to take care of. Sure. Yeah, exactly. So, okay. So, so you go to San Francisco, this is now 1977. You go to San Francisco, team is struggling fourth place, but a pretty interesting lineup. You've got Willie McCovey, um, you know, kind of coming to the end of his career. Uh, Daryl Evans, who you would play again with in Detroit, Tim Foley, who you would play again with in Pittsburgh, a young Jack Clark. 
tell me about that team, you know, kind of coming into the Giants. And, uh, and well, also tell me a little bit about playing at, at Candlestick. Well, I think the problem was Candlestick. It's not so much uh, the players that you play with. It was just uh, really tough to survive that park, you know, because uh, Jack Clark, I, I think of all the players I played with, Jack Clark hit the ball uh, harder than anybody ever, I, I ever seen. You know, obviously, uh, Willie was, you know, I, got, I had the opportunity to play against uh, – a few with a few Hall of Famers like say Willie McCovey, uh, uh, Willie Stargell, Billy Williams, and, and you know guys like that. But you know, uh, but Candlestick was was tough, you know. And then eventually in San Francisco we had we had Vita Blue and uh, and Mike Ivey. But uh, you know it it was it's basically the ballpark. It was just a cold, miserable ballpark. You know, no fans, wind, and everything. So. And that's the toughest thing about San Francisco. The city itself was perfect, but the ballpark was just as bad as the city was perfect. Yeah. Have you had a chance to be to go to the to the new stadium? Uh yeah, I've been I've been yeah, I've been there. Like say I went there for the um I think the fiftieth anniversary of the uh Dodgers moving to uh California and I think San Francisco moved the same time. I think I did both of them uh, that year. Okay. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. I've, I've been to that. It's a great stadium. I, I want to call it Peck Bell Park, but I know it's changed names. So yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Your second year there, Vita Blue comes in and kills it. He goes 18 and 10. What was, what was having him on board? Like, you know, after him playing with the A's all those years. Well, it was always, you know, great to get a number one pitcher. At least you know you weren't going to be on a long losing streak, you know. And uh, and it was always fun watching people try to hit Vida in that cold weather there. You know, Vida was a, a character. He was a great pitcher and probably should be in uh, – well, probably should be in the Hall of Fame. Well, it, we can, I don't like to discuss that because you can go on and on about that. Uh, and, and that year – at some point during that year, Daryl Evans is moved to third and you're moved to second. What, did, what, did, how did you feel about, you know, kind of switching positions? Were you pretty comfortable anywhere in the infield or did, would you have preferred the the hot corner? Well, I preferred, um, uh, you know, third base with that man, our, our team, my better, uh, Willie McCovey. Uh, he asked me to do it. So, you know, and I respect the heck out of him and uh, it was no problem moving over. You know, we made our team a lot better. Hmm. Oh, that's interesting. So, so Willie McCovey is the one who kind of approached you about it, not the manager. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Okay. He was well respected in the clubhouse and on the field. Yeah. Um, okay. Cool. And and actually, that year, you guys, that year, you guys were good. You, you were finished in third, which obviously is frustrating. Yeah. But you're eighty nine and seventy three. Uh, you know, the team is making progress. Um, and then the next year, uh the team starts to struggle again and about halfway through the season, you are traded actually almost exactly at the halfway mark. You're traded to Pittsburgh with Lenny Randall effectively for, for Ed Whitson. Um, what was, what was your thinking when you find out that you're, you're, you're being traded to Pittsburgh at the time? Like I say, when you get traded one time, it really, really <laughs> don't matter. But like I say, I always spent a lot of time in Pittsburgh during the, uh, off season doing charity events uh, with with uh, Willie Stargell. You know, he had his golf tournament, he had his uh, bowling tournament, sickle cell and name. And so, um, 
if any team that I wanted to go to was was that team. Like so I went from being a last place team to eventually winning the World Series, and that was a good thing about it. Yeah, and and it's it's interesting. So many things about that '79 season fascinating to me. One of them, I read that Pete Peterson, the GM, and Chuck Tanner approach Willie Stargell and Dave Parker, you know, two of the the stars of the team and and two of the clubhouse leaders. And they say, hey, we've got a chance to get Madlock. What do you think? And, and Stargell and Parker say, you get him in here and we'll, we will win the division, which is exactly what happened. But, and then what's also interesting is, though, when you come in, the team is basically two or three games over 500 halfway through the season. And then in July, August, and September, if you look at it month by month, you basically finish you know, kind of 20 and 10 every month. Like you're finishing 10 games above 500 each of those months. So 30 above 500 in the second half of the season. And in those 80 plus games that you play, you bat 328 and drive in 44 RBI. So you immediately come in and have an impact um, on that team. Um, and then, yeah, like you said, then, then you guys go to the, you sweep uh, Cincy in the National League uh, Championship Series and you play Baltimore in one of the iconic series of the last, you know, kind of 50 years. Um, Tell me, tell me about like the, the feeling in the clubhouse. Cause like I said, when you came in, the team was not in first place. Uh, you, I think you were five or six games back and you were just barely above 500. Um, t- tell me about that experience. Well, obviously, you know, when you go from a last place team for winning team, when guys that you, you respect, you know, because you had Parker, had uh, uh, San had Foley, we had uh, Phil Gardner. It was just uh, it was, it was a good clubhouse and that's, and I guess, and that's the whole thing about it. It made you want to come to the ballpark and made you want to go out there and, and give a hundred percent every time you go out there. And one thing about it, and you knew the teammates was behind you 100%. And and that's the whole thing. And, and that it was fun playing. And that's the main thing. It was fun playing in Pittsburgh. Yeah. And, and that, so you, you bat 328 in, in the second half of that season. Um, and then in the postseason, you bat 333 to include, like I said, at the top of the show, 375 in the World Series. And that World Series, the batting, I had Burp Lilevin on the show maybe four or five months ago. And we talked about this, just the insane batting um, that you guys got out of your lineup in that series. And you needed it because, it, you know, it took seven games to win. Um, but the entire infield, you, Foley, Garner, Stargell, all bat well above 300 in the series, and also Parker and Omar Moreno. You bat 375. And the key, I think, to the whole thing was in game five, where you're down three to one, you need the win, obviously. It's, it's must win at this point. You go four for four. And, um, and Blylevin picks up the win, and you guys win, and then that catapults you to the next two wins. Um, what, what was what was the feeling like in the dugout in that game five where you know you needed the win and where you were? Oh, uh, well, you know when behind three to three to one, you know you need to win every every game. But like I say, you know it's been so long ago, but uh, you know uh, it, it's the main thing is way uh, you know Stargell, you know he's a leader of our team, uh, and he said we haven't played our best ball yet, so don't worry about it. We're gonna win this, and then we just took off. So uh, you know he. You know, obviously he was uh, he was the MVP that year at the league, and he was the MVP in the World Series. So uh, 
you know, Sarge was just unbelievable the whole time, you know, both uh, both in the clubhouse and on the field. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, Bert talked about that, how he was like, look, every, you know, everybody stepped up their game, which was great. He's like, you know, we, we got on Willie's back, you know, he, he led us, you know, to that title. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, uh, and, and tell me about playing for your, your entire time in Pittsburgh, which was 79 to 85, your entire time you play for Chuck Tanner. And I had read about Chuck that, you know, he, he had played in the majors for, you know, seven or eight years and that he never forgot what it was like to be a player. And he tried to manage that way as a result. What was it like playing for Chuck? Well, it was fun. You know, he made it, he made you want to win. He, uh, he gave you the opportunity to, uh, be yourself out there on the field and off the field. Uh, and he respected you and, and, and you respected him. And it, it, like, it was fun playing with Chuck, you know, uh, he, at the time, you know, he was a big part of my career and he'd been my family, big part of my family. So he, he, he was, he's just a great individual, a great manager, the best I played for. Hmm. But, you know, Chuck, Chuck let everybody, you know, play their game. And I think that's the whole thing, you know, uh, um, when you're out there, you know, he's behind you. If you messed up, he wasn't going, he wasn't going backstabbing or nothing. He was just uh, always there for you if you needed to talk to him. Yeah. Um, and then, and then the next year, um, in, uh, in, in 1980, uh, it's a winning season, but but you guys finish in third, and and Philadelphia goes on to win. And Stargell, Willie Stargell, starting to play a little bit less. And then in '81, that's the strike year, and it's kind of a weird year. Obviously, this season split into two, and you guys finish fourth overall. But you have a hell of a year. You you bat 341. You're the batting champ again, and you're an all star. Um, and then um, and then and then win another uh, batting title two years later, and you're an all-star again, um, you become the captain. What was that like, you know, kind of stepping into that captain's role after, you know, such an iconic captain well, like Billy Stargell? It, it was an honor because, uh, you know, I, I looked at it. That's how much uh, Chuck uh, respected me as a player and as, as an individual, you know, and when you step into somebody like Willie, you, you don't want to mess it up because, like, say, uh, he – he, you know, all those guys there at the time, you know, him, uh, Bradshaw, Joe Green, and all those guys, they were, they were just so iconic in, 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 the, in the eyes of the fans in Pittsburgh. Right, right. And you, um, I had read, so obviously one of the other stars on the team along with you was uh, Dave Parker. And there's a story that when you're in the minors, you um, – I think it was on a pickoff play. You apply a very hard tag to the head of a certain six foot five guy on the opposing team. And the guy didn't take it well and chased you into left field um, goes on to become one of your best friends, but that was Dave Parker. Tell me about that scene. I, I don't, you, you gotta look at it. We're let's see how old am I now? I'm 71 in the minor leagues. I was there six years ago. So, you know, that stuff that I, I, I like, I could make up some, but I, you know, just, just don't remember, you know, okay. I know Dave, Dave and I end up good friends. We end up uh, being neighbors and uh, I seen him uh, just uh, three or four weeks ago in Atlantic city uh, at an autograph show, both him and uh, Bert Blylevin was there. So I got a chance to see both of them. 
Oh, that's cool. Oh, that's great. Um, and so then, um, so, so you're the captain on that Pittsburgh team. And then in 85, the team is, is struggling. Um, and you are traded to the Dodgers for RJ Reynolds and Sid Bream. And you go to LA and now you're playing for Tommy Lasorda and, um, you, you're there for one month. And in that one month you hit 360, um, and, and drive in, uh, you know, 15 RBIs. Um, and then you guys get to the national league championship series, you lose to St. Louis, but you bat 333 and drive in seven runs in, in those uh, six games. Tell me about the experience of going to LA playing for Tommy Lasorda, you know, playing with guys like, you know, I guess Steve Sachs and Mike Sosha, et cetera. Well, it, it was okay. It wasn't great. Nothing like that. I can't tell you that it was the greatest thrill of the life plan out there, but you know, it was, it was, it was, uh, we had a good team there. We, uh, uh, had a great pitching staff with Fernando Hershiser, Bob Welch, and Jerry Royce. Uh, but like I said, my favorite manager still it was was uh, Chuck Tanner. You know, when you go to Dodgers, you know, I, I think they're more so on people who come up to their organization instead of people who come into their organization because uh, they believe in the Dodger Blue and a very successful organization. So, uh, uh, I went there and I did my job and I had a, had a good time there the three years I was there. And, uh, that that's about it. Right. Uh, 86 and 87, you're, you're still with the Dodgers. And then, and then by 87 early in the year, Mickey Hatcher is put in, is, is put in at third and you're, you're effectively released and you sign with Detroit who, and, and so you get, you know, to experience, you know, yet another pennant race, this time playing for Sparky Anderson. T tell me what it was like playing for, for Sparky in Detroit that year, 1987. Well, it's, it's so much different with playing in the American League and playing in the National League. You know, National League, you know, is a uh, uh, manager, do a lot of stuff. You know, obviously Sparky was a great manager, but, you know, I think that was the best hitting team that I played with Detroit, we had Daryl Evans, we had Lou Whitaker, we had Trammell, and we had Gibson and stuff like that. Uh, uh, it, you know, it, 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 it was fun. Anytime you play, you know, for us remembering all that, you know, like I don't remember, don't remember, but you know, but anytime you win, that's just like anybody else. Anytime you win, it's fun. And like say in, in American League, playing there, you know, being a DH, being, you know, it's so it's so different than then being out on the field every day, and 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 that's a big difference, you know. Right now, DH everywhere, so it don't really change the game itself. But back then, the game was a big difference, and you know, same way when we played in the World Series, they had uh, uh, DH one year, uh, uh, and not the next year, and I think that was a big part of us winning the. Uh, Winning the World Series, it wasn't no uh, wasn't no DH year we played. Oh, that's right. So Baltimore couldn't use Lee May, who was a key yeah. part of their team. Yeah, so that's a bit, that's a big difference in the game now. Everything, everybody have DH now, so it's it's it's, it's a big difference, you know. And, and you know, the manager go the whole year without, you know, using DH. Now you have to manage without the DH, so it's a big difference, you know. For us, you know, like say. Like so I, you know, I don't. I'm not the type who sit back and 
you know, look, you know, I wish I had did that in baseball, you know, and stuff like that. You know, I'm, I'm happy with the years I spent in baseball. I had a lot of fun, you know, and, and I met a lot of guys and still right now, a lot of guys who I played with are still my friends. Right. Right. Yeah. And that just one last thing on that Detroit team. So it's interesting. That's another team that you join and they're out they're They're not in first place when you join them. They're six and a half games out when you come on board and it's a, it's a really exciting pennant race and you guys win it. You basically win it on the last weekend in a heated race against Toronto. Um, what, like, how exciting is that, you know, being in a pennant race that's coming down to the wire like that? It was nerve wracking. I think almost every game, I think we went into the last week, uh, probably, I think three games behind them, two or three games behind them with four or five to go. And we were playing them. And I think that's the big, Greatest part about back then, you played your division the last month of the season, you know, and they, they don't do that as much now because especially next year when everybody's playing everybody. So, and, and, and I think it took away the fun of a pennant race and it's hard to come back in a pennant race nowadays than it was back then because you were in the situation that you, last month of the season, you were always in your division. And and that was the fun thing about the end of the year if you were behind by seven or eight games you had opportunity to come back but now it's tough to come back right right um yeah exactly and and that team so that was interesting you're 36 years old at this point when you're in detroit you're primarily a dh is that correct yes okay um did you did you like being a dh did you kind of view it as a way to kind of you know keep things going a little bit or did you miss you know kind of that other half of the game well, you always, you always, when you played your whole career, didn't you go, uh, you know, you know, start the agent, obviously you, you want to hit, you know, cause that's what I was known for, but you know, still, you know, you seem more part of the game when you plan the game itself. Right. Yeah. And it's funny cause left to just, you know, just hitting, not playing in the field as much, your, your production numbers are, are high. Like you hit 14 homers and 50 RBIs, you know, you're only there for basically half the season. Um, So, uh, and, and I'm curious on that roster, obviously Jack Morris, the pitcher who again, as a twins fan, um, you know, famously pitched that game seven in 91, where he pitched all 10 innings in shutout ball. How, how, what was he, you know, you, you were obviously known as being a fiery competitor. Uh, What was it like playing with a guy like him? Well, you know, back then, you know, uh, you know, Forrest, uh, hitters, you know, they didn't associate more that much, you know, the pitchers and, and hitters, you know, they was always, always different, set different in the, in, in the bullpen and the dugout and stuff like that. Not like it is now, you know, uh, uh, obvious Jack was a great competitor, a great pitching and, you know, and, and just like Bly Levin, it took way too long for those guys to to make the Hall of Fame. They should have been there on the first ballot. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I'd agree with that. Um, and and it's interesting. So so you retire. You're like I said at the top of the show. There's 14 guys in Major League Baseball history who have won four or more titles. Um, six of them are like over 100 years ago. I think only five are in the last 50 years. It's you, Gwyn, Boggs, Carew, and Cabrera, um, which is, which is just, you know, incredible. And, and, you know, that many fewer who are actual little righties. Um, 
do you do you see you know who who are the hitters that you look at today and say you know man that guy's got a great swing or that guy you know he's on top of it um, who, who are the hitters you think are, are you know kind of top of their game right now I really don't watch baseball that much anymore you know because the leagues have changed uh, these guys just swing for home runs you know obviously you know when you you know you look at what Cabrero did last year or so or what uh, uh, um, Pujols doing this year, and obviously what uh, Judge doing uh, this year. You know these these guys are you know to, to me are un, unbelievable hitters and, and stuff like that. Before you know, sit down and and watch the game itself. I you know I, I you look at I, like a lot of players I talk to now. They don't they don't watch the game because it's it's uh, it's a boring game now. You know, right. they either strike out, walk, or hit a home run, and you see that. And that's why I say when you see those guys, you know, with one ninety four or five guys on the on the team, you know, so that don't make uh, too much of a exciting game anymore. No, yeah. you know, no, yeah. So it, it is just, you know, and you know, analytics taking over. So you know, and obviously when we played, we didn't have it. So like, it's tough to. You know, the, the look at it that way. We just look at people doing the job on the field and don't seem like some of the guys are doing it and they're still in the big leagues. Yeah. Yeah, I remember I read something that you said, somebody was talking about analytics and you said something like, look, man, we, we you know, I had, I had it all in my head. I knew like what this pitcher could do, what he was going to do, when he was going to do it. And, you know, yeah. that was my analytics. Yeah. Yeah, um, like now they now they need a paper in the they need a paper in their pocket to tell them to move two steps to the left or two steps to the right. So you know, or what a pitcher pitched them, you know, and and you know, like it is, it, it, you know, they 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 talking about speeding up the game. That speeds up the game because you don't have to listen to a you know a mic or or listen to that. So it's it's it's, it's different. Sure. Yeah. Um, who was the, you know, you know, between, you know, growing up in the, you know, kind of late fifties and sixties, and then obviously all your years in the game, who's the best hitter you ever saw? I I probably, uh, best hitter I ever seen was, uh, uh, probably Barry Bond by far. I I don't think Barry Bonds, I don't think of any hitter really come close to, to Barry. Okay. Um, and who was, who was the best pitcher you've ever seen? And then also the best pitcher who you ever went up against where you just thought, my God, well, I, I, I was always say Steve Carlton. Okay. Um, and who I, I asked this question of a, a hockey player, Dennis Potvin. I said, was there a goalie? This is, you know, a guy who scored a lot of goals. Was there a goalie who just had your number? Just, you just couldn't beat him. Was there a pitcher, you know, for all your, you know, batting acumen, was there a pitcher who just just had you for some reason? Yeah, every pitcher had you because when you can fail seventy percent of the time, people don't realize how tough it is to hit. You know, obviously, uh, uh, every pitcher. You know, you can face a pitcher one week and go three for three. The next week, you go over, over, and you know because of the the way it is in baseball, it's such a tough sport to do. So it, it's. Uh, you know, it, it runs in cycles, you know, and, and, and that's why I think sometimes they get over 
old work at Santa Analytics, you know, you're going to go bad one week and you're going to go good the next week. You know, probably have nothing to, you know, you don't know why. You know, you think you're doing the same thing, but you're not doing the same thing. So that's why I look at it. I look at a game of percentage. And you, you grew up, uh, again, you know, a very successful football and basketball player in high school. Who, who were the guys who you liked? You know, who, who were the guys you loved to watch play football and basketball? Obviously, you know, when I went to L.A., you know, I I had season tickets to the, to the Laker game. So, you know, Magic, Kareem and, and stuff like that. And probably my favorite running back was um, – um, Oh, gee, I forget his name. I just seen him the other day. Uh, Eric Dickerson. Sure. I love watching him. Yeah, but, you know, for us, you know, when I was growing up, we didn't watch it. We were outside playing, you know, not like it is now. Right, right. You, you mentioned Magic Johnson. Uh, he, If I recall correctly, he was on the President's Council on Physical Fitness, I, th- I think under George H. Bush. And I saw that you were on it also, I think under Reagan. Um, how, did, how did that come about and what was that experience like? You know, at the time, uh, they obviously didn't think our the kids were getting fit. You know, they was cutting out uh, PE in schools and stuff like that. It just had to get our kids uh, in nice, more active because obviously, you know, the they, the obesity is up in our country. Right. And uh, I, I think I had read somewhere that your favorite player, uh, you, you listed Jackie Robinson and, and Pete Rose. Obvious, Jackie Robinson. That you know, that's a given to most, 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 you know, black black players. He's the first one, and like that, Pete was one of the first players I've seen uh, played that I played against too. You know, he, he. I grew up close to St. Louis, and I went to a game in St. Louis, and Pete was playing. He played just as hard when I was high school, and that's when I played against him. And then, and then when you were on some of those early All Star teams. Uh, you would have played with him, right? How cool was that? Yes, that was that was great. You know, that's why I said it was that was a great part of you know being an all star. You know, playing against guys, you you always can look at them across the in the other dugout, but being in the same uh, clubhouse that's that's an un- unbelievable feeling. Yeah, um, Tony Gwynn, who I think won eight batting titles, said that his technique was to bring the handle to the ball and the barrel follows. Do you agree with that? No, it's all hitters got their different, different styles, but you know, basically all I'm got to do, do bad. You got to get that handle on, then you got to get the head to the ball. I have to say it's, um, it's, it's been great, you know, kind of talking to you and, and hearing your stories from, you know, from an incredible career, you know, kind of spreading out over, you know, a bunch of different teams, but some really iconic pennant races uh, in, in, uh, Pittsburgh, but also in Detroit and LA, obviously that we are family world series championship in Pittsburgh. Um, and, uh, and, and just, you know, one of the guys, one of, you know, kind of eight guys in the last hundred years to win four or more batting titles, um, uh, is, is just an incredible accomplishment. So it, it's been a real pleasure to speak with you, Bill. Thank you very much for coming on chasing hardware. Right. You have a good day. I really enjoyed it. And thank you for listening to Chasing Hardware. I've been your host, Rich Lumello. The Michael Stanley Band brought us in, and the suburbs with Life is Like are going to take us out. Speak to you next time.
I'm Mark Chapman. Welcome to the Planet Premier League podcast. Each week, Cesc Fabregas, Nader Manua and myself talk all things Premier League. As a player, you don't have time to talk. No. You don't have time to make a plan. You just need to deal with wave after wave after wave. We watched Coach Carter and he said, oh, afterwards, the game's just about doing this for your teammates. And I remember looking around halfway through the film and half the squad was asleep. <laughs> Planet Premier League. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.